All right, well, here we are, and we are going to launch into James chapter 2. I want you to listen to a scripture. You don't need to turn, just open to James. Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You know why you're here tonight? You are a part of a mighty army. And that army is on a rescue mission. And we are waging a spiritual war every day every moment of our life. And the reason that James, by the way, the first of our New Testament books, some people think James wrote his book to counter Paul's overemphasis of grace. Paul never wrote until long after James was written. James probably did not have the opportunity to read much of Paul's epistles, maybe a couple for 2 Thessalonians, maybe. Paul certainly read the book of James. It's very clear when you go to Romans chapter 4, what shall we say? That Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to glory about, but not before God. In those few words, Paul interprets James chapter 2. Because he's telling us that Abraham was vindicated by works, but not before God. He was vindicated or justified before men, which is what James 2 is all about. So turning with me now to James chapter 2, let's once again ask God's blessing, and I'll try to get you out of here by 9.30. Father in heaven, once again, we call on you to do what you alone can do. We pray that you will overcome all of our weakness and frailty, that you will even overcome our resistance as we fail to be slow to speak. Sometimes we want to give rebuttal in our mind to the things that your word says and the conviction that the Holy Spirit places on us. Help us to be humble. Help us to receive your word planted in our souls by the hand of God the Holy Spirit, so that we will not be hearers only, but will be doers also, to the glory and the honor of our marvelous and magnificent Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to very quickly review the highlights of James 1. What do we need to hear and what do we need to do? We need to hear the importance of counting it all joy when we fall in various trials. We need to understand any trial that God allows in our life is intended for an eternal purpose. It is to lead us to maturity. It is to break up the fallow ground in our life in order to plant the seed of the word that it might bear fruit. We need to remember that when we are at wit's end, it's time to ask for wisdom. And if we ask for wisdom in faith, God will give it. We need to remember that our trials are an invitation to lay up treasure in heaven. Our trials give us the opportunity to demonstrate faith and demonstrate endurance so that we might receive the crown of life. We need to never blame God for our temptations. 
Our temptations come from a trio of causes. The world, the flesh, and the devil. By the way, we're a third of the problem. Right? So don't say the devil made you do it. He just, all he did was throw out the bait. Above all, <clears throat> we need to lay aside moment by moment and day by day that backwash, that plugged up toilet, if you will, the overflow from our sin nature. And we lay it aside. The, the phrase, by the way, laying aside pictures, taking off dirty clothes, throwing them in the wash, getting them back clean. That's what we do every time we confess our sins. We receive God's word planted in our soul so that we can be doers of the word, so that we can look into the mirror and reflect the birth face that we have in Christ so that we can correct the things that hinder us from that reflection. We're to look into the perfect law of liberty, which is the marvelous grace of God. God's grace sets us free. We are free from sin. We are free from Satan. We are free from the world. But we are not free to do as we like. Paul says in Romans 6, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do what you want. There's not only a spiritual war going on out here, there's a spiritual war going on in us every day, and we are to be victorious in that fight. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we are something when we're nothing. Let's be honest with ourselves and realize how deeply and greatly and daily we need the grace of God to restore us and fulfill his plan in us. In James chapter 2, he's going to deal basically with two issues. And the two issues are two errors that we can fall into. And the first is partiality. We're going to be dealing with partiality from verse 1 through verse 13. And then we're going to deal with the problem of unfruitfulness partiality, and unfruitfulness. Let me read you a couple of quotes since chapter 1 dealt with suffering. Storms make a strong tree. Trials make strong Christians. God uses affliction to separate the sin he hates from the soul that he loves. Think about that. Charles Spurgeon said, I dare say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is good health. That is with the exception of sickness. You get that? I dare say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is good health with the exception of sickness. You know, a lot of people don't realize that Charles Spurgeon had terrible bouts of deep and dark depression. He called it his black dog. And he had days when he was in such a deep and dark place. And yet, if you read Charles Spurgeon, you will never read a sermon that was not as if heaven had opened its gates and he was looking at the glory of God shining out and just celebrating the marvelous grace of God. That's what overcoming is all about. Here's another one for you. If Joseph had not been Egypt's prisoner, he would never have been Egypt's prime minister. The path to glory is oftentimes through suffering and pain. So as we move into James chapter 2, he's continuing now to teach us. And at the end of each chapter in your notes, I give you a little summary of the chapter. And it's intended to remind us that we're supposed to be both hearing and doing. But I don't have time to go over those. You can read them yourselves. I want you to come with me to James chapter 2 and verse 14, what I take to be the key verse of chapter 2. What does it profit, my brethren? Again, addressed to believers. If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, 
and faith saving? Now, the first question we should ask ourselves, save him from what? Well, as I pointed out in chapter 1, he's already defined what he means by being saved. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Save our soul or save our life from what? Number one, grumbling when we fall into trials. Number two, making distinctions between the poor and the rich. He's going to deal with that as we get into this chapter. Number three, recognizing that I don't have wisdom and knowing that God could give it to me, but thinking that he probably won't because I'm such a terrible sinner. Why would God give me his wisdom? We can come up with all kinds of rationalisms. We think of the idea that I am a super Christian. I'm far more advanced than others. After all, I hit maturity last Friday. That kind of thinking. Right? We need to be saved from those things. We need to be saved from blaming God. We need to be saved from that death that is carnality. Did you ever stop and think about this? At any given moment in your life, you are either carnal or spiritual. Did you ever think about that? Do we ever examine ourselves and say, am I motivated by the flesh or am I motivated by the Spirit of God? Who's in control? I love A.W. Toza's picture. It's such a graphic picture and so simple to see, and yet it contains so much phenomenal truth. You take a circle and that's your soul, and in that circle there's a cross and a throne. Ask yourself the question, where are you today? Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after. But what do we want to do? We want to sit on the throne. Well, if we take the throne, guess where we put Jesus? Put him back on the cross. If we learn to take the cross and bear the cross, he's on the throne and he's in charge. And we'll get more into that as we move along. So what does it profit? I want you to notice... The relationship, profit, benefit. What benefit has your life been today? What profit has come from your life today? This is the important issue. What is the profit? What's the benefit to the neighbor in need if I boast about my faith and I hear of their need, and I ignore their tears, and I turn my back on their plea. What's the profit? There's no profit to them. Certainly there's no profit to me. And what is the profit to the cause of Christ for which we're here? So James is really going to zero in on this, and we're going to take this in little sections. We're going to start. <coughs> I'm going to read a long section for you. Verse 1 through 13, the issue of partiality. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these are believers. Again, they have faith. They have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory with partiality. Question. Did you enter in here tonight and look at anybody and think, well, they look like an idiot? You know we do it. You know we do it. I don't think I'd like them. I don't like the look on their face. We do it, don't we? It's called partiality. Oh, wow, look at that person. How well-dressed they are. Well, look at this guy. He's still in dirty clothes. And we make these distinctions. Someone drives up in the BMW and go, man, they're under God's blessing. Some guy drives up in an old B or Ford F-150 like I've got, and they go, I don't know. Do you know that there are people that choose the church they go to by the car their pastor drives? It's true. Because if he's not driving a fine automobile, he must not be under God's blessing. Don't be partial. Partiality means to make distinctions and cause divisions. Those two definitions are very important. To make distinctions between two people that cause divisions. 
very destructive, very damaging. Again, I have to say, and I'm not trying to polish anyone's apple here, Living Truth Church has shown me more of the love of Christ than I've ever, ever seen in any church. And I know Nan would tell you the same thing. Everyone who walks through that door knows that they are loved, knows that they are important, knows that they matter, know that people care about them. Now you might almost get overwhelmed because someone comes up and says, hi, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? And the next person comes up and says, hi, I'm so-and-so, and, -so. and you, you've met 10 or 20 people, but you know what? I've known churches that you could walk in and you could be in them for a year and no one would ever ask you name. That's not the love of Christ. That is not the love of Christ. So there comes into your assembly a man with gold rings. The Greek literally says gold fingers. Mr. Goldfingers. He's got rings all up and down his fingers. Fine apparel. And right behind him comes in a poor man in filthy clothes. Facile would know and understand this. There are people who are Christians in Pakistan. There are people who are Christians in India. And the only job they can get, and they do it every day of their life, is they go and they stand chest deep in backed up sewers and take buckets and dip those sewers out and put it into the gutter so that it'll run so that they can clean the sewer out. That's their job every day. So the guy walks in in the fine clothes, pulls up in the fine vehicle, and here comes the gutter cleaner. Do we make a distinction? You pay attention. Pay attention means to give special consideration. You pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and you say, oh, oh here, sit in a good place. Good place literally means sit in this place of honor. Sit in the place of honor. You know, Jesus talked about people fighting over sitting in the place of honor. What did he say? Take the lowest spot. Take the lowliest place. If they want you to come forward, let them come forward. Then he said you have honor before everyone. But if you choose the place of honor, and then they have to say, oh, someone else should have this place, then what happens? Now, with embarrassment and humiliation... You take a lower seat. You say to the poor man, stand over there or sit under my feet. Sit under my footstool. Sit on the floor. I'm not going to let you sit on my footstool. Sit on the floor. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I don't know about you folks, but I can't read this without being convicted. Because I do it. And I hate it when I do it. Because I know it's wrong. And I have to go to the Lord and I have to say, you got to wash all of this away. This is wrong thinking. You know, confession's wonderful, but confession not followed by correction is nothing. You know what confession without correction is? Faith without work. I know a lot of people that confess all the time. Oh, I'm confessing, I'm confessing, but they never correct. You know? What's the benefit? Judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith? It doesn't, the word to be, that's in italics, that's not a part of the original. He didn't choose the poor to be rich in faith. He chose the poor who are rich in faith. That's the point. And heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him. You know what? God doesn't care if you're rich or poor. If you trust him and love him, you're rich in his sight. There are no poor children of God. Every single one of us has all spiritual blessings. The storehouse of heaven has a reserved place in it with your name on it. You've got the key. All you have to do is open the strong box. All you have to do is write checks on the account of faith and all of those riches are yours. You're an heir of the kingdom. Start living like an heir. You're an heir of God. What does Peter tell us in 1 Peter chapter 1? 
He has redeemed us to an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Let me ask you a question. What more can he do? He gives you an eternal inheritance. On top of an eternal inheritance, he gives you the opportunity to win eternal reward. It's like he saves us from our own sin, and then he says, now watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you live life in such a way that I can put away in your mansion, which I am going to prepare as a place for you. I am going to be stockpiling that place with the rewards that you're stacking up. It's amazing. And then you know what? You say, oh, that'll be wonderful to get there and I just sit there and look at all my treasure. No, no, you're going to be busy. We are going to serve him forever and ever. We are going to reign as kings and priests and kings rule, priests serve. Christ is a king priest. He rules over all. He serves to the lowest degree. Even though Paul says he eternally existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to cling to or to clutch to himself, but he made himself of no reputation. And I like to, I paraphrase, this is called the Cunningham Revised Translation. He laid aside his robe in heaven and he stepped down into the world of sin, sorrow, and suffering of men and he took on the robe of human flesh and as if that wasn't enough, as if he hadn't already stepped down enough, he came as a child of a peasant couple. He was born into poverty. He lived in obscurity. And then he goes to a cross, hated and despised for you and I. That's why there was given to him a name that is above every name. Because we are exalted to the degree that we will humble ourselves. Feel like giving up yet? <laughs> Never give up. God has chosen the poor of this world. Verse 6, but you have dishonored. Now he is laying down on these readers a conviction of what they have done. Because James saw it. He, he saw these things happen in churches. You have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you? Wait until we get to chapter 5. He's going to show how vicious the rich can be, even sometimes in local churches. Do not they oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name, name by which you're called? We know that that often happens. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Why is it the royal law? Jesus was the one who gave it. He gave it in Leviticus 19. He repeated it in Matthew 22. And the Pharisees came to him and said, what is the greatest law? And he said, how do you read the scripture? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these hang all the law and the prophets. How does Paul summarize it in Romans 13, 9? Love owes no man anything, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. If you leave here tonight with one thing, could I just throw this out as a challenge? Let the love of Christ flow through your life. We recently studied Paul and Onesimus and Philemon and I told man after it was done, I always look back on my classes and go, why didn't I say this? <laughs> I wish I had ended that. For those of you that were there, I wish I had ended it with two questions. So I'm going to give them to you now. Who is the Onesimus in your life? Who is the person who's failed, who's brought shame on many people, who has come to you for rescue, who is your Onesimus? Number two, who is your Philemon? Who is the person that you need to challenge? I think I just went dead. Batteries. That's all right, I can talk loud. <laughs> No. 
Basil, the tech, the tech guy. Oh, that's my boy. Pulled the wrong thing off my belt. Listen, don't leave home without it. Aren't you glad this? Aren't you glad this is not being filmed? Um, to try to get back to. This is pretty serious. Somebody in your life right now is an Onesimus. I'll bet you can think of them. Son, a daughter, grandson, granddaughter, neighbor, friend. They don't need you beating them down. They need you lifting them up. They need you restoring them. Let's hear it for Fassel. Thank you very much. Who's your Philemon? Because if somewhere there's a mature believer in your life, that they're on the brink of failing, and they need you to challenge them, they need you to call them up to the mark, they need you to hold the plumb line and say, this is the standard. This is what's required. We all have that in our life. <clears throat> Verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convinced by the law as transgressors. You know why? Because you break one law, you're guilty of all. Look at what he says. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. That's why there's no hope for us trying to be saved by the works of the law. What does the law do? It convicts us of sin. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. You know what his point is? This is very simple, but it's very important. It's not the law, it's the giver of the law that counts. Why is the law so important? Because of who it was given by. It was given by our creator and given by our redeemer. And therefore it matters. Verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Did you know that you're going to stand at a judgment? One day you and I are going to stand at a judgment. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And we're going to see wood, hay, and stubble burned up. Read 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to see gold, silver, and precious stones purified and refined. We're going to stand at that judgment. You know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5? Read 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we warn men to be prepared for that time of judgment. I don't know about you, but when I think of standing before my Savior for all that he's given me and how oftentimes I have treated it lightly, I tremble. For the times I've stood behind a pulpit and preached a message and I knew that I was in the energy of the flesh and not the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give an account. You know what James is going to tell us in James chapter 3? If you're a pastor, if you're a leader, if you're a teacher, you have double accountability. That's a heavy burden. And then he says in verse 13, For judgments without mercy to the one that shows no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a very simple lesson, very powerful. I want you to get it. You can store up mercy for the time when you stand before Christ. You can store up mercy. It's possible to stand before Him and give an answer for your life and receive no mercy. Or to stand before Him and have mercy given. You remember when Paul spoke of Onesiphorus? And he said, he often refreshed me in my bonds. May God show mercy to him on that day. What he says here, you show no mercy, you get no mercy. Say, where in the world did this come from? Well, it came from the Lord Jesus Christ who told us in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. For with what measure you judge, what did he say? It's going to be judged back to you. 
man, all of a sudden I want to be gracious to everybody. And that's exactly the point. To be gracious and merciful to those who are just as weak and frail as we are. Now we get to the real essence of chapter 2. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone he says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Save him from what? Save him from carnality. You know what? You can be totally under the influence of the sin nature and you can recite orthodox theology ad infinitum. You know all the answers. You studied the theological books. You went to Bible college. You went to seminary. You've had a good local church education. And you can go down the list and you can tell what is true and what is not true. And you can have it all. And you know what? It doesn't mean a thing. Because if you're not operating under the power of the Spirit of God, your sin nature will take it and destroy it. How do people twist the matchless grace of God into licentiousness. Well, first you have to know about the grace of God, do you not? Oh, God is gracious. God forgives sin. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We know how wonderful the love of God is. It's all wonderful and magnificent. So let us sin that grace may abound. Now here's the test. And I'm going to get you on this one. James is going to get you. If a brother or sister, may I just point out again, brother or sister indicates fellow believer. If they're a fellow believer to you, that means you're a believer. He is not talking to false professors. He is not talking to people that were never saved. He is not talking to people who lost their salvation. Those are all false interpretations. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, and you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Does it profit them? No profit. Does it profit you? No profit. Now, he says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What do we mean by dead? Carnality. Faith out of fellowship. Faith under the influence of the sin nature. Faith in what Paul refers to as 1 Corinthians 3 as he writes to the Corinthians and they are believers and he says, I brethren could not speak to you as unto spiritual but as unto carnal because as long as there are divisions among you are you not still carnal? Get this last phrase and acting like mere men. You're acting like unbelievers. You're living like unbelievers. You're a child of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, invested with the treasures of heaven, and you're living just like the unsaved. That's the whole Corinthian epistle. By the way, in the Corinthian epistle, there are at least ten sins going on in the Corinthian church when Paul wrote it. You know what he calls them? My beloved brethren. He loved them even as unruly and rebellious as they were. Ready for the test? Have you ever seen anyone in need and not met that need? Someone that needed counsel, someone that needed comfort, someone that needed a helping hand, someone that is, they're moving, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, man, I'm so busy on Saturday, but really it's because the football game's on. You know what? You're guilty. Have you ever had a believer come up to you and pour their heart out to you and you say, hey, I'll pray for you, and you go away and forget to pray? I've done it. Guilty. Guilty is charged. What was the profit? Nothing. What condition was the faith? Dead. What do we mean by dead? I believe you have in your notes... If I can flip through these very quickly, the Bible speaks about death in several different ways. If you turn to page 14, toward the bottom of the page under 217, 
The word dead is used for spiritual death, which is separation from God. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. Talks about physical death. That's the separation of the soul from the body. It talks about sexual death. That is the separation of the body from sexual function. That's, you'll remember, Abraham and Sarah in Romans chapter 4. It talks about operational death, which is used of believers only. And that's what James is talking about. Non-functional, unprofitable, of no value. By the way, look up 1 Timothy 5, 6. Paul is talking about widows in the church. And he talks about the danger of supporting young widows because if they're supported and they don't have to work, they become lax. They uh, reject their first commitment to serve the church and be faithful to Christ. And they go out and start becoming busybodies and living a high lifestyle. And he says, she who he's using it of widows. So he says, she, she who lives in pleasure is dead even while she lives. Does that mean she's unsafe? No. Does it mean she died? No. It means she's leading a carnal lifestyle. Dead. And then we have, of course, the second death, which is the separation of the soul from God forever. How does the Bible define death? It is the separation of something from something. And you see separation in all five of those things? And what is the death? You can't operate in relation to that which you are separated from. Did you get it? Operational death in the life of a believer is a believer separated from fellowship with God. Therefore, they have cut the pipeline of God's power coming into their life. There is no filling of the Spirit in their life. There is no control of the Spirit in their life. They know the Word. They can quote the Word. They can recite the Word. They're operationally dead. I want you to get this point. If you are not in fellowship with God, filled with the Spirit, you can't fulfill the Word of God. You can't. It's impossible. Do you know why? Because you're dead. Functionally, operationally dead. Faith without works is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In verse 18, he introduces a rhetorical device which is called diatribe. It's something that was used by debaters in the ancient world, still used in the world today. And that is, you introduce a straw man or you introduce an objector. And the objector is trying to derail your argument. So the guy that James introduces here is not agreeing with him, he's disagreeing with him. What he's trying to do is take James' argument and twist it around and turn it into nonsense. It's a little bit difficult. I'll try to make it as simple as possible, but here it is. Someone will say, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. All right? Can you show me your faith without your works? I've got nothing to see, do I? There's nothing that I can look at and say this person is a believer. I will show you my faith by my works, says the Mormon, who sees the hungry person and feeds the hungry person and clothes the hungry person. See my faith? You have faith without works. I have works, but I don't have faith. You believe that there's one God. You do well even the demons believe and tremble. This is a very important statement. And basically what it boils down to is you can know the truth, you can believe the truth, and be totally separated from the reality of that truth. Demons know Christ is a Savior. How many times when He showed up on the scene, they said, what do you have to do with us? Why are you here? Are you going to torment us before the time? We know we're under judgment. We know we'll be condemned forever. Have you come to, to do that now? They do that. What did they do? They trembled. They were terrified. Did they have a right relationship with him? No. You know what they had? They had works without faith. He's, he's confirming the very point that I'm making from the diatribe of verse 18. Do you want to know, you, foolish man, that 
Faith without works is dead. James here answers his objector. Do you want to know, you fool, that faith without works is dead? All right, I'll give you an example. And he goes here into the example. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And you need to understand that the word justified is being used here as vindication. The same word that's translated justification is translated vindication. You might remember that Jesus once said to his disciples, wisdom is justified by her children. Do you know the point that he was making? He was making the exact same point James is making here. I don't have time to take you through it. I think it's in your notes, but there are phenomenal parallels between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount because James was there when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount. The problem is James was not yet a believer. But when he became a believer, he remembered. And there's a whole list, and I think I have it in your notes. If not, come, I can find it for you. But there's a whole list. Uh, Dr. Uh, Fruchtenbaum, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, in his book on James, he lists all the parallels. I believe William Barclay does the same. Lists all the parallels, or at least many of the parallels, between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. Just phenomenal. Was Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac? Changed the word to vindicated. Abraham said he believed God, right? The scripture said he believed God. Was that claim vindicated? You better believe it. Anyone that would offer their son is showing that they really believe. Verse 22 is important. Do you see that little phrase? Do you see? What was the objector saying? Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You can do good works and not have faith. You can have faith and not do good works. The whole point that James is trying to get us to wake up to is, if your faith is alive and functional and operational, it is going to be producing. How do we know that? Look at Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was imputed to him for righteousness. That's a claim of Scripture. That claim was vindicated when Abraham took Isaac up Mount Moriah and laid him on that altar. Do you see? Yes, we can see, James. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. What did I say James meant by perfect? Maturity. Oh, Abraham took James up, or took Isaac up on Friday. He became mature on Friday. I keep using that as a ridiculous illustration. By the way, if Abraham was vindicated by putting Isaac on the altar, and by that action his faith was made perfect, that is, it came to a level of maturity, does that mean that Abraham stopped? No, read the story. He wasn't done with his spiritual life. There were still things for him to accomplish. There were still great things for him to do. One of which was to send an unnamed servant to go back into the old homeland and to find a bride named Rebecca and bring her to his son. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. James and Paul are in perfect agreement with one another. They both tell us that we're saved by grace through faith apart from work. They both tell us that once we are saved, we need to grow to spiritual maturity. They both tell us that in our Christian life, we are going to have a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And they both tell us that we need to live in the filling of the Holy Spirit so that our lives are productive, fruitful, and have a witness and an impact on the world around us. My friends, a lot of people refuse to believe in Christ because they don't see Christ in believers. You know what I've heard a lot of people say? I'm okay with Christ. I'm not okay with the church. You know why? When I had my first church, I said, I want to fill this church with bikers, drunkards, and harlots. People looked at me like I'd gone insane. I said, 
Those are the people. Why do you think they were drawn to Christ and they're not drawn to our churches? I'll tell you why. Because our churches aren't like Christ. When they know that they can come in and be accepted and welcomed and received, they'll come. Guess what my church turned into? It was a church full of bikers, drunkards, and harlots. And their lives were transformed. That's what it's all about. Notice that Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. What did Jesus say again in John 15, 10? You are my friends if you do what I command you. I want to be his friend. I really do. I have many wonderful friends here. Wonderful, wonderful friends. But there's no friend like him. There's no other friend like Jesus. See, you get the point here in verse 24 because he's going to say, do you see? The whole point is, what is visible about my faith? Is there anything that someone could look at in my life and say, that person is a follower of Jesus Christ? Remember when Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord. I take that, put him on the throne of your life. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your life and be ready always. People say, I can't witness. I don't know how to start it. I'm tongue-tied. I'm embarrassed. You know what Peter's method of witnessing was? Put Christ on the throne of your life and then be ready to answer every person who asks you a reason of the hope that's in you. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever had anyone walk up and say, what is it that makes you different? Because you know what? When they ask you that, it's pretty easy. Witnessing is not hard when someone says there's something about you that's different. It's very simple. Do you know why they ask it? Because they see it. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot? Once again, the kind of people we want in our churches. Why do you think, have you ever asked this question, how come every time Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, she's called a harlot? Because she didn't continue to be a harlot. She married one of the spies that she hid because of her faith. And then she had a grandson by the name of Boaz who married a woman named Ruth who, they're all in the lineage of Christ. Read read Matthew 1, verses 1 through 5. The, the women that are mentioned, it was, it was totally un, improper to mention a woman in a lineage. Matthew broke all the rules. Tamar, Bathsheba, Rahab, Ruth, and Mary. It's marvelous. I love how God loves sinners. My God loves sinners. And I wouldn't be here if he didn't. But you know what? He loves us as we are. He loves us too much to leave us as we are. That's the great thing. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Read Joshua chapter 2. The spies come to her house. She says, we've heard what... The God of Israel has done. We've heard what he did in Egypt. We've heard how he brought you guys through the Red Sea. We have been living in fear and terror and dread. We believe that he is the true God. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the Cunningham Revised Word. <coughs> so, you know what she did? She risked her life. She hit him. She risked her life. Did that show that she really believed what she believed? Could I suggest to you something at the end of James chapter 2? By the way, I, I know I've only scratched the surface. I apologize. Time goes too fast. There's too much here. But I want to tell you something. You and I are living in a time when Christians better start putting their lives on the line. We're going to be called to account in these days, in this generation. We better start living like we mean it. For as the body without the spirit, the word spirit, did you know that the word spirit and breath are the same? 
Your body without breath? What is it? Yeah. What can your body do without breath? Nothing. What can your faith do without works? Nothing. When you stop breathing, you're dead. Your soul, you're still alive. Your soul is still thinking, functioning. But you can't function in the physical realm because you're separated from it. That body can't do anything. Your faith needs works like your body needs breath. You ever have trouble breathing? Have trouble catching your breath? I want to suggest to you that we have a whole lot of Christians that are on spiritual emphysema. They need an oxygen mask. That's what the teaching of the word is. It's an oxygen mask. I remember our first son was born, came out, wasn't breathing, started turning gray. They didn't want to paddle him. In the old days, they'd smack him in the butt and they'd scream like a banshee, you know, but we can't do that because it would hurt their psyche. <laughs> so the, the nurse that's holding him is kind of shaking him like this, and I'm saying, whacking <laughs> and And shaking him, and, and he's turning gray. It's right down in Phoenix, St. Joseph. He's turning gray from lack of oxygen. Finally, an aide comes in, sticks that little thing, and he goes... You know what I said? It's alive! <laughs> you got oxygen. Could I suggest to you that if you walk out of here and say, I'm going to start putting my faith to work. I'm going to employ my faith. By the way, should, I should point this out to you. The word dead in verse 26 is not the same as the word dead in 17. In 17, it's necros, which means dead. And then later on, when you see it in verse 24, uh, sorry, verse 26, the words argos. You know, all this is in your notes. You know what argos means? Ready for this? Unimportant. Unemployed. Could I suggest that you hire your faith? Give it a job. Put it to work. And something strange will happen. You will start growing. And people around you will start being blessed. It takes so very little. Let's go out of here to do just that. Father, we're thankful for your grace. Again, thank you for each and every one who came. Bless us as we go our way this evening. Help us to dwell on and think on the things that we have heard. It may only just be one thing out of the whole night, but it's that one thing that we need. Help us to go out of here and put our faith to work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.